we continue this morning in a series that we're calling Cha-Ching, God, Money, and Me. Uh, and this morning is specifically about consumerism and the air we breathe. Um, you will understand more as we go on. But I want to share with you this gospel text from Mark, the 12th chapter, uh, that is often called the widow's might. Hear these words. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had, even what she needed to live on. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hmm. If that keeps doing that, we're going to stay right here. So, um. What in the world? Lord have mercy. All right. Well, sometimes you never know. So we'll work from here. That's fine. James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, that looks like this, um, he describes a scene here of worshipers preparing to come into the house of worship that I share with you this morning. Upon approach, the architecture of the building has a recognizable code that makes us feel at home no matter what city we're in. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar texts and symbols on the exterior walls help the foreign faithful quickly and easily identify what's inside. And the sprawling layout of the building is anchored by larger pavilions or sanctuaries, akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. We arrive at one of the several grandiose entries to the building, channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts, intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers, as well as providing a bit of decompression space for the regular faithful to enter in to the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there is a large map, a kind of worship aid, to help orient the novice to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. The design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree, drawing both seekers and the faithful into the enclosed interior spaces, with windows on the ceiling open to the sky, but none on the walls open to the surrounding moat of automobiles. The sense conveyed is one of vertical or transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal mundane world. This architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding suggests sanctuary, retreat, and escape. From the narthex entry, one is invited to lose oneself in this space that channels the pilgrim into a labyrinth of octagons and circles, inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven, goal-oriented ways we inhabit the outside world. 
The pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking of clock time, to inhabit a space governed by a different time, even a sort of timelessness. With few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light, it almost seems as if the sun stands still in this space, as we lose consciousness of time's passing, and so lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. However, while daily clock time is suspended, the worship space is still governed by a kind of liturgical festal calendar, variously draped in the colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added, since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions to the sanctuary and engaging in worship. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that harken back to medieval cathedrals Mammoth religious space is designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at one time. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter one of the chapels will be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desires to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons embody for us concrete images of the good life. These are the ideals of, of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich, embodied, visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires. It compels us to come, not through dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of one of the chapels, we are thereby invited to consider what's happening within, invited to enter into the act of worship more properly, invited to taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming acolyte, who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms if we so choose. Sometimes we will enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively making our way through this labyrinth within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need, but unsure of how it will be fulfilled. And so open to surprise, to that moment where the spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated. Having a sense of our need, we come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be here. And then we hit upon it, combing through the racks. We find the experience and offering that will provide fulfillment. At other times, our worship is intentional, directed, and resolute. We have come prepared for just this moment, knowing exactly why we're here in search of exactly what we need. In either case, after time spent focusing on and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar that is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give, we are invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feeling or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, which are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place.
And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but get in return something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and the season. Released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement, not necessarily with the intention of leaving. Our awareness of time has been muted, but rather to continue contemplation and be invited into another chapel. Who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? What temple is James Smith describing? A new type of church building? Well, in some ways, he's actually giving you a picture of a shopping mall. Picture what I just read for you as you walking through the streets of South Point in Durham into the places of contemplation, into each individual chapel. He talks about the narthex that you walk into with light all above you, the map that guides worshipers through to purchase or commune with whatever picture of divine is given there, the saints or mannequins wearing all of the things. In fact, the picture that he gives actually makes us recognize uh, that, that we, par we participate in the religion of consumerism each and every day. You enter into that shopping experience, maybe some of us enter into it excited. Maybe if you're going with someone, I remember going more as a teenager and thinking about what I was wearing to the place where I would be getting new things to wear, right? Which makes a lot of sense. You can enter in and cut out the outside world for a while and participate in the liturgy of shopping, the liturgy of consumerism. At the end of this, Smith quotes someone. He says, how do we learn to be consumerist? Not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make me happy. I don't think my way into consumerism. Rather, I'm covertly conscripted into a way of life because I have been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals I didn't even realize were liturgies. Friends, what Smith wants us to see and what I want you to see is that we participate in liturgy every day. If liturgy is simply activities that form us and ground us as people, we are made to be worshiping people. And in the United States in the 21st century, we have been formed, we have participated in the liturgy of being consumers. My children kept seeing this commercial for a product called a yelly. Yellies are little fuzzy spider-looking creatures that move faster when children yell louder. My children told me they wanted a yelly. Yellies are the toys they play with in hell. <laughs> in his book, Being Consumed, William Cavanaugh describes the issue for us when consumerism becomes the telos or the end that we live for. He says, when there is a recession, we are told to buy things to get the economy moving. What we buy makes no difference. 
All desires, good and bad, melt into the one overriding imperative to consume. And we all stand under the one sacred canopy of consumption for its own sake. Consumption for its own sake. Consumption that doesn't actually satisfy the consumer. The writer of Ecclesiastes knew this well, right? He says, the money lover isn't satisfied with money. Neither is the lover of wealth satisfied with income. This too is pointless. Pretty apt words. So we hear of these things like an addiction to shopping that someone might have, and we might think that, that is so silly that someone could be so materialistic. But friends, we have all done it. Bill Kavanaugh writes this. He says, a person buys something, anything, trying to fill the hole that is the empty shrine. And once the shopper purchases the thing, it turns into a nothing. And she has to head back to the mall to continue the search. With no objective ends to guide the search, her search is literally endless. So we become perennial shoppers. Have you ever had the experience where you're looking forward to getting that new thing? Whatever the thing is. When you were a kid, it might have been the latest video game system. When you're a grown-up, it might have been the latest phone that does the same thing as the old phone that you had to replace. It just got like three years old, so it seems ancient, right? And you get it, and then you realize like, oh, it's the same thing I had before, right? Or I'm not satisfied, but I was looking so forward to the thing. Or you get the new car, and two months later, the smell's not there anymore, and you've spilled on the seat three times, right? sounds like the next verse from Ecclesiastes. But what do owners benefit from such goods except to feast their eyes on them? You might be sitting here saying, I hate shopping. This is so irrelevant to me. I never go to the mall except for that one time I have to go at Christmas and it's crowded and horrible and everything I loathe. And I agree with you mostly. But I share this story with you. Two sharks one day two younger sharks, they were swimming in the, in the ocean next to each other. And as they were swimming and just enjoying the beauty of the day, an older shark swims by. He's reading the paper. He's got a little hat on. And he says to them, how's the water today? And they keep swimming. And ten minutes later, one of them says to each other, what the heck is water? What is water? Friends, what I'm telling you is that we are, you are, immersed in consumerism. Even if you're someone that doesn't love to shop, it doesn't matter if you're a shopaholic or you can't remember the last time that you went to a mall, I'm here to tell you that this is water. You're swimming in it. It's the air we breathe. Consumerism is the water that we swim in. It's the air we breathe. I, too, hate shopping. But a few weeks ago, I was on Facebook, and I saw some shoes that I had to have. I didn't know that I had to have those shoes, and I clicked on them. Mistake number one, right? And then I saw a bunch of other shoes, like those other shoes, that seemed even nicer than those shoes that I also had to have. How did Facebook know that I needed those shoes? A couple weeks ago, I got to go to Costco without the children. 
as, as, as unattractive and unappealing as clothes are at Costco, they got to me under the fluorescent lights folded up on those middle, metal tables in the middle. And there I am buying four pieces of clothing when none were on my list, right? Three of them are going to get returned because you can't try them on there because there's nowhere to put them on. But anyway, eh, the allure of it got to me that day. So friends, if this is the water that we swim in, what do we do about it? Or how do we live differently in a consumeristic world as followers of Jesus? i got a few things that might guide us. One, one is this, recognize when you want something too much. I'd invite you to examine your wants. Are your goals toward monetary gain or the next thing or next toy consuming you? James Smith, before he describes this liturgy of the mall, he says the mall is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. I just like that line. So, um, but, but right, he's saying that it's not, once again, like we talked about last week, it's not about the mall giving you new ideas about how to consume. We don't, none of us have ideas about consuming. We just know that when we see the commercial for the Yelly, we want it, right? When the ad pops up for shoes that are marketed at a 34-year-old man about my age and about my income level, then all of a sudden I want the shoes. These people are smart that run these things, right? Recognize when you want something too much. Second time, spend less time exposing yourself to advertising. More books, less phone. More outside, less TV, right? The, the, the more time that you are not in front of anything that can be marketed at you, the better, right? The more time that we recognize the advertising for what it is, for trying to sell us things that we don't really need, the better. Three, practice giving and sharing. This is the root of the Christian principle of tithing. The more that we give, the less we are attached to the money that we unrightly think is ours. Right? Isn't this the root of the story of the widow's might? She gives, Jesus says, out of her poverty. She doesn't give out of her excess. But instead, she gives to the point where giving hurts. Right? She gives out of her poverty. Another thing, do a stuff audit. Ecclesiastes closes today, I have seen a sickening tragedy under the sun. People hoard their wealth to their own detriment. Friends, only in America do we have so many storage units and buildings for storage units. Have you ever looked, you, you see something new going up and you're like, oh cool, something's coming in. And then it's a storage building? And you're like, that's so lame. Like, how, how do they afford the money to put garages on land? But only in a country with so much excess do we have to build extra buildings to put the stuff that doesn't fit that we eventually, maybe we say, we'll go through, right? What kind of weird addiction to stuff do we have? 
five. I'm sorry if you own a storage unit or if you own a, if you're like in the business of running storage units. I don't think any of you are, so I think we're safe, right? A fifth way that we combat this is, is that we create and make things. My oldest daughter has an innate desire to create. It's the only thing that can occupy her for like more than three minutes by herself is if she's creating. She loves art and, and, and designing stuff and thinking of it. But whether that is crafts or carpentry or knitting or sewing or crocheting or art or poetry or music or good food, creating things, we become less focused on consuming when we are fulfilling God's good desire in us to be co-creators with him. Friends, my honest hope is that worship would capture our imagination and heart like the allure of the shopping trip that James Smith describes in that book. I pray that we would anticipate meeting God's very self and be formed and changed by God's presence. I hope that there will be the air of anticipation as you make your way here each week. Not because I'm going to say something so inspiring and so brilliant, but because God is here. I hear the psalmist in the back of my head saying this as he walks to the temple. I thirst for God, for the living God. When will I come and see God's face? Your desire, hope, longing. Friends, our desires, our deep, deep desires are not fulfilled. They are not satiated by consumerism. Instead, we are addicts in its swirling and alluring system. And I'm here to tell you, you are swimming in its water. God help us all. Amen. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, sometimes we don't realize we don't realize the, the water we're swimming in, the air that we breathe. And we don't really question it. We just go along and do the things that we say that we need to do to get them done. And yet, Jesus, you call for our entire hearts. And Lord, what we want is for our hearts to be attuned to you and to the things of your kingdom. And God, we recognize that when we are so connected and tied to this, these ideas underneath consumerism, Lord, they take us away from focusing upon the permanence of someone like yourself. They take us away from being true followers of you. And instead, we trade the truth of God for a lie, for something that's kind of cheap. So we ask that you would help us. God, whether this message has hit some of us in ways that said, well, really? That yeah, I guess that is kind of like it. Or, or in others of us, we would say, yeah, I'm guilty as charged, and, and, and I have some, some patterns of consumerism, or, or, or wherever it meets us today, I pray that your spirit would, would, would not just convict us, uh, but also meet us in those places in our hearts that need your touch, and that need our wants and our desires to be transformed by you. For it's in the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.